Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Podcast. I'm writer Gabrielle Mathieu, or if you're French, it's Gabrielle Mathieu, and I'm the author of the Falcon series, which is historical fantasy. Today, we're going to be talking about a dark fantasy series, which is set partially on Earth and partially on other worlds. This is the third book of the Sanyara series by author Megan Haskell. This book is called Sanyara, the Rebel Apprentice, and it just won the reader's favorite bronze medal for adventure books. My review of the book follows. It concerns our heroine, Re. She's more than 100 years old. Sometimes she feels like it, even if she looks like any other human girl. After uncovering a plot to create war between the Nine Realms, she and her friends are hunted, and her mentor, a distant fairy relative who remains on Earth to maintain peace, is seriously wounded. While the High Elves want segregation and dominance, Half-Human Re has a network of alliances which span the realms. In this, the third installment of this engaging series, we find her on a run with hunky strawberry blonde Prince Daynor, her own personal troop of three-inch pixie warriors, a horse dragon, and a friend, a water fay, who almost dries up and dies during the course of their long journey. Rhi's challenges include finding out which high fairy was behind experiments that turned fay and elves into killers, rescuing heartthrob Prince Daynor from his own grandmother, and making an alliance with the Daemon world, a place where restless ghosts roam. Fans of Sarah Moss will appreciate Megan Haskell's world-building and her feisty, sword-wielding heroine. You can jump into Haskell's series with this book, but it's helpful to know some background. The current truth-seeker, Sanyaro, Reese teacher and ancestor who uses the human name Greg, is a mediator. Rhee is his apprentice. She's also a warrior, but one who's still doubtful of her own leadership abilities. Her universe consists of nine worlds, including the human one, which seems to be a handy place to escape to when you have hordes of fairy warriors on your trail. There is also an autumn realm, a summer realm, and a demon realm, among others. And we'll be talking a little bit more about those on the show itself. You can join us shortly for the actual podcast, but first I'm going to be reading a little bit from Megan Haskell's book. We find Rhi and her gang on Earth looking for a safe passage back to another one of the nine worlds. But while they're on terra firma, they have to try to blend in, which is a real challenge. Here, Rhi tries to get gas for the truck that they're all driving. You go inside. And I can find someone to help. You stay here and keep an eye on everything. Make sure no one gets too close or tries anything. 
We strode through the mechanical doors of the station trying to appear confident, or at least like she'd been in one of these places before. There were a few people eating thin, greasy hamburgers at the small restaurant to the left. They turned to stare as she entered, but then swallowed and returned to their uh, so-called food. To the right was a section filled with racks of prepackaged foods and candy, plus a wall of refrigerated drinks at the back. Gathering some supplies, including an entire case of water, Re approached the counter and Pimple crested attendant. Uh, that's it? The boy squeaked, his eyes wide as his gaze stuck to Re's chest. She wasn't particularly well endowed by human standards, but apparently the leather vest was enough to excite this one. Um, no, I need some help with the uh, fuel machine, Re replied, turning her tone sultry. Or what she imagined sultry might sound like? She didn't really have much experience flirting. The boy didn't seem to notice. Of course, he stammered. Oh, what's the problem? I don't have a card. I need to pay with something else. Uh, like what? Gold. We plunked down three gold chips. Uh, the kid hesitated. Not enough? I can give you two more if you'll help me carry my supplies out to the truck. That should more than cover the cost in your time. Well, I don't think my manager will approve. I mean, no one ever tried to pay with gold before. Cash or credit, that's it. Well, gold is like cash, except this way you get a nice big tip. We slid the coins forward. All you have to do is refill our fuel, take the gold to a bank or jeweler, and sell it to repay the station. Any excess is yours to keep. I don't know. The boy still hesitated. Heavy boots approached from behind. Reed dropped the hand to her belt, then remembered she'd left her blades in the truck. Better to blend in, or so she'd thought. She hoped she didn't come to regret the decision. Ells, boy, if you won't take her up on it, I will. So, I'll leave the re listeners hanging there, but I'm sure you can guess there's trouble up ahead. So, Megan will be coming on the air in a couple of minutes. I would just like to say a few words about her. She's the award-winning author of the Amazon best-selling dark fantasy adventure series. Again, that's called the Sanyare Chronicles. She lives in Orange County, California with her husband, two young daughters, and one ridiculously energetic dog named Dash. In addition to running with Dash and carting her children from one activity to another, Megan enjoys drinking wine, playing tabletop games, and watching college football. She is also the content director for the OC Writers, a network of published and aspiring authors. You can find her on her website. That's www.meganhaskell.com. Megan is M E G. A-N, and Haskell, H-A-S-K-E-L-L. -L. You can also find her on the Orange County Writers Network, and that's OC Writers Network. She's also on Facebook. Hi, Megan, and thanks for making time to join us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Great. Well, we've got some questions. Starting off uh, with, 
The fact that Sanyara, the Rebel Apprentice, is the third book in a series, although it's easy to understand, even if you read it on its own. For a series like yours, though, which involves multiple other worlds, it's important that readers get a sense of the complexity without being overwhelmed. So for our listeners today, could you introduce the nine connected worlds and tell us a sentence to you about each one? Sure, absolutely. So when I originally conceived of the idea for Senyare, um, well, it started with the character of Rie, but then after that, I built the world. And I spent a long time actually uh, just doing world building and research and um, spending, you know, trying to make this a a realistic fantasy, I guess. Um, so if it existed, it sort of makes sense and the rules stay consistent. So it's based very loosely on the Norse world tree. Um, so the nine realm, the upper realm, which you can, if you imagine a tree, the upper realm would kind of be at the top of the tree. Then there's um, season-based realms, the summer realm, winter realm, spring, and autumn. And those each have an associated magic. Um, so as you can imagine, summer is fire because it's hot. Winter is ice or frost, and they're kind of the opposites. And then spring is wind, and autumn is plant and animal-based magics. Then you've got the trunk of the tree, or the base of the tree, I guess, the lower branches, which are the human realm and the dwarven realm. And those two realms are sort of neutral territory. Um, they don't have a strong innate magic, though they might have ele slight elements of um, enchantment and that kind of a thing. Um, and then you've got the roots of the tree, which are the uh, shadow realm, which is the realm of the soul. So the elves and fey creatures that live there um, can manipulate you know, a, a creature's soul, um, send it to the afterlife. And there's also the demon realm, which is actually the afterlife. And so those are the nine realms um, for the entire series. In each book, however, I only touch on really one or two, a few, um, so the reader doesn't get overwhelmed by all the different locations or all the different settings. Um, so in book one, it's primarily the upper realm and the shadow realm. In book three, you have um, primarily the human realm and the summer realm. Um, uh, so I've kind of tried to ease readers into it a little bit. So I give you a taste of things here and there, and there's always more to discover. So I guess we'll have at least nine books in your series. <laughs> that might be something to look forward to for fans of the series, of which there seem to be many. So moving yeah. on. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, I don't know if there will be nine books for Rie, um, but I have lots and lots and lots of stories for all the different side characters and, and all of the um, backstory history, the ancient history of the world. So I will be playing around in, you know, the, the realm, the nine fairy realms for a very long time. <laughs> a very long time. Okay, so speaking of Sanyare, we know that she's a truth seeker. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the functions of a truth seeker. 
Sure. So um, the truth seeker or senyaro, which is the male version of the of the word, senyare is the female version of the word, um, is the title that um, Lord Garaman, who is Rie's uh, mentor, um, that he kind of developed over the course of his life. So it's a term that he took on for himself. And really, he is the negotiator. He's the mediator. He is the one who protects the um, the weak or the innocent and tries to ensure that justice is served. Um, and mostly he does this on, you know, the larger scale with, you know, you were talking politics and races and, and that kind of a thing. And so it's, it's this position of honor. It's a title that, um, has to really be earned and requires a lot of different skill sets. Everything from, you know, being able to, tell truth from lie when you, you know, if you want to be really blunt about it, but also to be able to then negotiate and find the right compromise and judge correctly and not let your own emotions get too involved in the process. So he's kind of like a cross between a knight, a lawyer and a diplomat. Yeah, that's a very, (laughs) that is a very good assessment. Yes, that's it. Okay, well, Rhee has learned a lot about being a truth seeker from her mentor, who's also known as Greg on Earth. That's a little easier to pronounce. And she certainly dedicated herself to uncovering conspiracies. At the end of The Rebel Apprentice, it looks like she might have identified the person responsible for the kidnappings and deaths of at least a two dozen fae of various races. I don't want to give away too much about the third book, but is she getting closer to the truth? Well, so this is actually kind of hard to answer. I think, yes, she is getting closer to the truth, but truth isn't always black and white. It's not always as clear cut as, you know, we'd like to believe. Um, So she's uncovered one conspiracy. She's uncovered one set of, you know, ancient grudges and, and history and secrets. And, you know, she, so she has one story, but it's not necessarily the whole story and it's not necessarily the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always more to uncover and there's always more to research and find out. Um, so it's vague answer, but yes, but no. <laughs> I, having read the book, I can see how that would be true because there's yeah. some insinuation that one of the people is responsible, but then that person or that being has their own motivations and their own reasons for doing things. So Mm -hmm. Rhee has other challenges as well, besides finding out the truth. This installment of the series touches on her leadership ability. How does she feel about being a leader? So that was actually one of the the themes that I wanted to explore with this third book, um, because she is rising into her power throughout throughout the whole series. You know, this is kind of her character development. Um, so leadership, I think at the beginning of the book, you know, she she does not see herself as a leader. But at, by the end of the book, she's starting to understand the necessity of leadership and also the responsibility and the challenges of leadership. Um, so how does she feel about it? I think she's trying to come to terms with it. You know, she is she's she's realizing that there's a lot more to being senyare 
um, and becoming Senyare than just carrying the title and being, you know, descended as she is from, um, from the Fae. Mm-hmm. The Fae and Isita from the Upper World, where we grew up, prize order. The Demon World includes hungry ghosts and blood Sita, which sounds like vampires. Why would we reach out to the Demon World? She needs to use every ally she can find. And one thing that she, I think she knows better than most of the others, the, you know, the other Fae, especially the elves, is that every being, every creature has a place and has a purpose. And so even, you know, it's a kind of a last resort, but she has to use every avenue that she can and every skill and every ability that she can to ultimately win the day. Um, so to try not to give away too many spoilers, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think just because it's their, their souls or ghosts um, and just because it, there are demons doesn't mean that they're bad necessarily. Or they, they may, right. They may have a purpose to play. It makes me think of the Lord of the Rings where Frodo spared Gollum's life and, Gollum was the one who destroyed the ring, so... Exactly. Yep. Well, the High Elves that we were talking about are powerful beings. They're almost immortal, and they're very strong. They're hard to overcome as an enemy. What would you say their greatest weakness is? Well, it, it really comes down to the individual. I think every power has its opposite. Um, so you know, the, the upper or the high elves from the upper world, the upper realm, they are the wielders of spirit magic. They can control energy and they can control, um, emotion. Um, the dark elves from the shadow realm control the soul. And so they, they're kind of opposites and they're antagonists from a power structure, um, definition. And, so, so there's always, and then each individual, of course, has their own manifestation of that magic or of that ability. So there's always a weakness. Everyone has a weakness. Sometimes it's their attitude. The, the high elves in particular are um, very proud. They're very arrogant. They believe themselves to be better than everyone else. And that's also their downfall because it allows the other races to work behind the scenes in some cases and um, undermine their authority or, um, you know, they, they ignore the servants in the castle, for example, which is how Rie was able to function for so long before she became Senyare. So, um, yeah, so th- there's always, there's always a weakness. There's always something, but it's a very case by case analysis, I guess. I remember in a bit the high elves hadn't bothered to learn about human weapons as they entered the right. human world. And so it seemed to me, too, that in their arrogance, they might be overlooking some basic things. Well, absolutely. I mean, they, they, they consider themselves superior. So why would they bother to, to understand the others? You know, they, mm-hmm. they're, they, they are the supreme being, so the rest don't matter. And, and yeah, it, as you pointed out, the, you know, Another kind of concept that I tried to run with throughout the series is that if this 
nine realm system existed, how would each of the realms affect one another? And for thousands and thousands of years, the upper realm was was truly superior. They had the superior weaponry, they had the superior forces, of course they had the you know magical abilities that the humans don't have. But when you look at human history, real world human history, in the last just you know 150 years, technology has advanced at an incredibly fast pace. And so those high elves who ignored the humans and didn't bother to pay attention and have you know lived for thousands of years themselves, they ignored it, and now the humans have started to not only catch up, but in some cases outpace the technology of the elves. And so I've got I've played a little bit with that interaction and how that technology would have traveled and crossed over between the different realms. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that does uh, not please some readers because <laughs> they want their fantasy to be just swords and you know, sort of medieval style weapons, but Mm -hmm. um, they don't like having guns in their fantasy. Um, And I don't use them much, to be fair. What kind of, I mean, I guess the end of book three, it's, there's more, but, but, you know, it's not, certainly not a heavy handed presence, but this existed and these technologies and these would start to play, and that is, in fact, how the High Elves... Um, yeah, I guess that is a great weakness of the High Elves, is that they've they've just let everybody else sort of move on and progress without them. And even though they're immortal, they're kind of stuck. They don't yep. evolve the same way. Well, getting back to Rhee, she's kind of like the famous Harry Potter in some ways, because she is human, or at least partially human, we're not sure, but she has special abilities. Is she aware of all of them at this point? So, uh, yes, again, yes and no. It's a, another vague answer. Um, so, uh, without revealing too many spoilers, if someone wants to start with book one, um, the end of book one, she is introduced to her ancestry. And so she knows some things she knows she knows where she comes from now and she knows sort of what she's supposed to carry in her blood but she doesn't necessarily know how those powers will manifest themselves so she's starting to get a good handle on a few of them um you know she has fire magic she also has spirit magic um and she has she can occasionally um sort of um not intentionally, but it's it comes on uh, that she can foresee the future. Um, and But they're kind of like visions that, sort of like a migraine, right? They come out <laughs> of nowhere and they hit you. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so she has those abilities. The ones she can really control are fire. And um, she's beginning to have more um, control over some of the soul magics. So she's starting to manifest these abilities. But as with anything, when you grow in skill, and she doesn't learn these things overnight either, um, but as she starts to practice and as she starts to build up her skill, you know, she's going to get better at it and new things are going to reveal themselves as she's able to access them and ultimately um, control them. Well, hopefully. Sometimes the abilities get a little out of control when you're first learning <laughs> things, but... 
you know, everybody makes mistakes. That's right. <laughs> Especially with fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you have some fantastical creatures that appear in your novel. I Googled some of them, and some of them do exist <laughs> in different cultures, but even I hadn't heard of them, and I'm a big mythology fan. For instance, you have, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the Longma, the Barong, and the Nisi. Mm -hmm. These creatures have been described in disparate cultures around the world. You did mention doing a fair amount of research. Did you read fairy tales from other cultures? Or how Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, I guess I did kind of interrupt the end of your question there. Sorry. That's fine. But, um, yeah, no, I. that was one of the really fun things that I've continued to do, um, started with the world building, but I've continued to pursue um, as I've written the novels. Um, I, again, going back to this concept of the realm's interactions and how um, they would influence one another. Um, we humans as a species, we have these stories and for you know, they maybe a thousand years ago, or, you know, five thousand, ten thousand years ago, people truly believed these mythologies. So, what if there was a little bit of truth in them? And so, I did. So, I went and I researched different cultures, different mythologies. I, I intentionally tried not to um, focus too much on any single um, pantheon, I guess we'll call it, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I didn't just do Roman creatures or gods. I didn't just do Norse. Um, I've incorporated Chinese. I've incorporated Polynesian, um, as well as, of course, you know, Roman and, um, and Norse uh, mythologies. I've even, some of my creatures in earlier, earlier books come from Native American myths. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them only have a very short little role. They play a purpose. And sometimes when I'm doing research, I say, okay, I need a creature that does this or looks like this, what cultures have this kind of creature? Because they all exist, right? They all, every single vampires, uh, werewolves, they exist in the mythology. You just have to find the source and, you know, read the stories around it. And then I twist everything. Um, so nothing is exactly the way the stories, are, you know, the human mythologies, the way they're written because... Mm -hmm. As things cross over, as time progresses, those stories change and they shift. And it was really important to me to say, okay, there's a kernel of truth in them, but they are not true in and of themselves. This is how that's crossed over. Um, so I, I've had a lot of fun just reading, you know, the, the ancient stories, of course, in translated into English. So mm -hmm. again, you get a little bit of conversion there. What's really in that original story versus what's just due to the translation. Um, but, uh, but I've had a lot of fun with that. Yeah. And I also wondered about the chapters in your new book that take place underwater rather mm -hmm. than just magically enabling our heron to breathe underwater you went to a lot of trouble to describe the diving bell and other equipment and their travel through the water world. It made me wonder if you were a diver yourself. I am not. <laughs> I am, I'm really not. But I, I did do, again, did a lot of research into the mechanics of diving. And I've talked to um, actual divers who shall remain nameless in case I've screwed something up. Because if I've <laughs> screwed it up, it's my fault, not theirs. <laughs> Um, 
But again, you know, it was this idea that I really wanted um, to play with the magic and the science together. And I didn't want to just give her some magic spell that would let her breathe underwater because it didn't fit with the rules that I've set into place for the, the different realms. And so um, it, it, it just, there was no reasonable way to just say, Ooh, magic. And have her mm-hmm. do that. Like that for me as a reader, I would have a very hard time suspending my disbelief. Um, so as a writer, I went to the trouble of um, researching as best I could everything about diving, about the different options for diving at what different habitats, how, how, human scientists are living underwater, how long they can live underwater, what the pressure um, situation is, you know, the bends, what is that? How does that work? Um, All of that. I really, I, I, I I have a analytical mind. I like spreadsheets. I like math, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that I'm a writer. Um, And, uh, and so for me, like getting into some of that detail was necessary and fun. So, yeah, but I hope I've done, I hope I've done a good job with it. I really, I mean, I've gone snorkeling several times, which I know has nothing to do with diving really, but experiencing that underwater, um, um, feeling of being underwater, of being surrounded by water and seeing the wildlife swim by that comes from my experience, but the technology itself was was research. Well, I'm not a diver, but you had me convinced. Well, good, good, good. (laughs) Well, Megan's prolific. She's, uh, as I mentioned, Rebel Apprentice is the third book in her series. And on September 9th, she and co-author Greta Boris are coming out with something different. It's called Aspiring to Author, A Guide to Your Publishing Career. And just a little taste of what's in there, they describe how to discover your publishing personality, understand the pros and cons of each publishing path, develop personal goals that will lead to publication, build your author platform, and navigate basic marketing options. So that looks pretty comprehensive. And also, if you're interested in that book, if you sign up, then you can get kind of free freebie kits to get you started on it. And you should mention the website for that, Megan. I'm sorry I don't have it noted. Yeah, it's um, aspiringtoauthor.com is the website. So aspiring to, T-O, not the number, but aspiringtoauthor.com. And, um, yeah, we're very excited about this book. It's not September 9th. um, is September 19th. Um, so coming out next week, um, as we record this, um, and it's, it's an, it's kind of, I like to call it, it's a book for writers who are transitioning from hobbyist to professional. Um, and also for those who are perhaps, perhaps have a traditional publishing deal and want to switch to or want to try their hand at self-publishing or becoming an independent author, but are lost with how to get started. Um, so it's it's an overview. It is not um, the the end, but it's going to get you to ask the right questions and help you take those first steps towards um, putting your work 
out in the market. Well, what are some of the problems that you see most often with beginning authors? So a, a couple things. I think, um, it, well, setting aside craft, which takes you know, a long time to develop. And, and that's just the reality of the situation, right? It took, I didn't publish my first book for a decade after I started seriously writing. Um, and it, it just takes time to build the skill and to build the, the knowledge about the craft. But setting that aside, um, once you do have a, <clears throat> excuse me, a publishable, um, manuscript, something that's, that's actually of a quality that could be, that people would want to pay for, right? Um, the the biggest mistake I think people make is getting too caught up in a single path. They don't consider the other. So, and it, it happens on both sides, right? Somebody says, "Oh, I have to be, uh, I have to get an agent, I have to get a big five publishing contract, or you know, I will never be a successful author." That's not true. I mean, that could be true for you. That could be true for your goals. But there are other ways to be a successful author. Similarly, there are, I think, um, some authors who say, oh, I can't deal with any of that traditional stuff. I have to go. I am definitely going to go self-publishing and I'm just going to get it out there and people are going to love it and it's going to be an overnight success. <laughs> that doesn't happen either. No. <laughs> Sorry, I hate to break it to you. And really, there are a lot of similarities between the two different paths to publication, um, especially nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. Like you sure with a traditional contract, um, you know, if you're going the big five traditional route and we talk about the big five agented, uh, route to publication. We also talk about the small press traditional route to publication, which doesn't necessarily require an agent. And then that we talk about the, um, self-publishing or independent path to publication. Um, and of course there's also a hybrid publication, which we don't get into because it could be almost any combination of different things. <laughs> so keep that in mind too. Um, but, uh, oh shoot, now I lost my train of thought a little bit. Um, we were just talking about the common problems. And I think one thing you were saying is that people are inflexible when they begin. So maybe it's good to oh, approach things with an open mind and find out what your personality is. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, everybody has a different set of skills. Um, and the, you know, traditional you'll get it, you, you don't have to put money up front, but you still have to do marketing. You still have to spend the time doing a lot of that stuff. Um, the same tasks really that a lot of the independent pub publishers like myself that we have to do, you know, on the independent side, if you're a type A control freak perfectionist, like I am, I mean, you're going to want to have a hundred percent control of your book and you're going to want to be able to say, Oh no, you know, this, this, this little header is like a quarter inch too close to the first paragraph on chapter three of <laughs> the book. Right. Like, you know, you, you have to, so you have to play to your strengths. And I think that's what, um, aspiring to author will help these transitional authors, um, recognize, I guess. Uh, speaking of retaining control over your work, one thing I did appreciate about your work is I liked the covers. It seemed like a real woman had picked them out because it looks like a real young woman on a cover. She's not wearing a scanty hmm. leather bikini top. And I like uh -huh. that. It made it easier for me <laughs> to relate to Ree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, 
It's funny how hard that is to find in stock photography. <laughs> I know. I'm but... looking for my own cover for my new series. And the first, <laughs> the first five things I looked at, it's like, no, I'm not doing a GQ bikini cover. I want someone who is going to wear clothes that they actually look like they could fight in. Yeah, well, absolutely. And so my cover designer is Deranged Doctor Design, and I love them. They are awesome. Um, but that was one of my requirements for the stock of photography that they, that they chose was that the woman had to look athletic. She had to look like she could in fact actually fight someone. Mm -hmm. And she also had to be wearing appropriate clothes <laughs> for fighting someone. <laughs> so uh, luckily that, um, that cover model, um, she's actually, I think she's also the photographer, um, but she has a whole series that of, of images um, that are in that outfit and stuff. So I, I should have covers for a while. <laughs> uh, that's always another good thing when you find an image that you like to have more images for this series. Exactly. Yep. Well, what are you working on these days, Megan? So right now, in addition to aspiring to author, I'm working on a companion novella for really for book two in the series. So this is it's called Guardian. Um, it the main character is one of the side characters from book two. She actually makes a brief appearance in book three as well. Judith, um, mm -hmm. she's an angel from the demon realm. She's a guardian, and. The reason I chose to, to do this one next was because I felt like after writing book two, um, there were a few unanswered questions. Um, you might even call them plot holes. However, they had to exist in that book because Rie, who I, I write in very tight, close third person, um, she couldn't know the backstory to a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't write about them in book two. So... I decided to write this companion to kind of fill in those gaps and explain sort of what was going on in the demon realm when all this stuff was happening with Rie elsewhere. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm in process on that one right now. I'm about halfway done um, with the draft. Um, so I'm hoping to get it out before the end of the year. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a novella, so it's not a full length novel. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's going to be a little less than half the length of a full, you know, a full, uh, Rie novel. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been fun to write. And unfortunately it's been, uh, kind of pushed to the back burner a little bit because we've been doing this, this nonfiction. Um, but, uh, it's picking up again. And, and I think if all goes well, I'll have it out before, before the end of the year, for sure. So. Okay. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for joining us today on New Books in Fantasy and Adventure for my interview with Megan Haskell, the author of Sanyare, the Rebel Apprentice. You can find out more about Megan and her series at www.meganhaskell.com. I'm Gabrielle Matthew, the author of the historical fantasy Falcon series, which includes The Falcon Flies Alone and The Falcon Strikes. 
I blog about travel and other things which inspire me on my website. That's GabrielleMatthew.com. A little bit of a different spelling. G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. I'm there at Gabrielle Author. Thanks for joining me and tune in next time.